That's Williams in motion. Low snap. Melrose stopped. Michigan makes a stand and comes up with a milestone playoff victory. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tuesday 10. This is the third episode. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Um, first episode of 2024. This is part of the PHN Pod Network. We thank you always for listening. Today's episode, I'm going to be kind of blowing through these topics as quickly as I can. I know these episodes can run a little bit long. The goal here is just to kind of blow through some of the things that happened over the weekend, some thoughts that I just kind of came up with on the fly, and of course, talk about the Eagles. So uh, first of all, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Hope everybody was uh, happy and safe throughout the holiday season. Of course, the uh, it was cool because uh, Christmas, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, we got a little bit of football. And then, of course, New Year's Eve, we had uh, the NFL Red Zone. And then New Year's Day, we had some of the New Year's Six Bowls. <clears throat> College football front and center and will be next week as well as we enter week 18 of the NFL and the national championship in college football. I'll get to that on today's 10. Here's today's rundown. Uh, number one, Eagles embarrassing loss. Number two, A.J. Brown. Number three, Joe Flacco. Number four, Lions and Cowboys. And what happened at the end of that game? Number five, Michigan defeating Alabama. Number six, Washington defeating Texas. Number seven, the opt-outs in the bowl games and how I maybe can fix them. Number eight will be the Winter Classic. Number nine is the XFL and USFL merger. And number 10 will be the Rock. So without further ado... Let's get right into it. So the Eagles lost 35-31 on Sunday, uh, of course, to Jonathan Gannon and his Arizona Cardinals. Uh, I admittedly didn't see the beginning of this game. I did see a good a good bit of the second half. I was preparing food for New Year's Eve for most of the game, but uh, I guess I saw the, the worst of the two halves. They were up, I believe, 21-6 going into halftime. They had a pick six, a couple touchdowns to Julio Jones. And then the wheels kind of fell off after that, which – to be honest with you, I'm not totally surprised. The way this team has looked recently has been so uninspiring, even in winning efforts like last week against the Giants. <clears throat> and even, I guess, the Bills game was a pretty a good win. And the Chiefs game, of course, they kind of got out of there unscathed somehow. But the the Giants win, and then, of course, the, you know, the, the four losses that have kind of surrounded it between Seattle, the two blowouts before that, and this one, this team has not really put together a full game, a full 60 minutes, really all season. And I, I've said it on here. I've said it to other folks. Um, even when they were 10 and one, and then they were, you know, 10 and two, 10 and three, and they were kind of, you know, getting by. I was saying, if you're not, if you're still waiting to put a full 60 minutes together and you're still trying to work things out at this juncture in a season, once you get to December and now January, the, the reality is you're, you're just not a really good team. And I understand they'll make the playoffs. There's a chance they get, you know, home field in the first round. They won't get the bye in the first round because San Francisco has officially um, <clears throat> clinched that. I mean, there's still a chance they win the division, which would be nice. And I think that'll be a nice little consolation for this season, but it'll just make it suck even more in the end when they inevitably lose. But it's very much in play that they're going to have to go into Tampa and beat a Tampa Bay Buccaneers team, which right now looks really, really good. And a team that you kind of barely beat earlier in the season on that Monday night game back in uh, September. So, and then you got to take on the Rams or the Lions or the Packers, a hot team somewhere in that second round. It's going to be tough. And if they do get through it, more power to them. If they truly are playing possum, 
and saving things, keeping them in the back of the playbook for the games that matter while running a vanilla offense to just get by in the regular season, then you know what? I'll tip my cap and say I was wrong, but I, I at this point don't really believe I'm wrong because I think at this point there there are too many flaws on this team. And I, I have conversations with people all the time, whether it be Joel on the podcast or friends of mine or you know coworkers that happen to talk to me about the Eagles. It's hard to nail down the one problem this team has. You can kind of list them out if you really wanted to. I didn't do that in my prep today. You can list out, you know, obviously the red zone woes, the defense, the secondary, the pass rush not getting home, the vanilla play calling, maybe a lack of leadership, whether it be the coaching staff or the players, which we can get to in uh, bullet point two here. But th- there's so many issues, and when a team is this flawed, it's hard to get them all moving in the right direction. We see San Francisco. There's no issues there. No locker room problems. Shanahan has a good handle on the team. The guys believe in Purdy. The defense is elite. The, the, def- the, the assistant coaches, they get replaced every year, and they're still great. They lost Salah. They lost Ryans. They lost McDaniel. They lose all these guys, and they still continue to be great. The Eagles, I know this is a, short, a shorter, um, I guess, tenure for Sirianni in comparison to guys like McVeigh and Shanahan, and even got, and obviously Reed and Belichick. But when he loses assistance, all of a sudden he's stranded on an island because this offense looks totally different, this defense looks totally different, and they really didn't replace that many players from last year. And it's hard to imagine that everybody regressed at the same rate. So, look, this is a pretty much a total domination in the, in the score sheet. I went back and watched a lot of the highlights. Pretty disgusted at the play calling, as usual. Too many screens, too many you know draws. Too many weird play calls when it's first and long, second and long after penalties or after sacks, and you're just playing a very conservative ball game, not using your best receivers down the field. Um, let's just look at the tail of the tape here. First downs in this game, 32 to 17 Arizona. Third down percentage, 50% to 44% in favor of Arizona. Total yards on offense, 449 to 275 in favor of Arizona. <laughs> Furthermore, Passing yards, 228 to 184. Rushing yards, 221 to 91. Total plays, 72 to 47. Time of possession, 39-39 to 20-21. Just complete domination for the Cardinals. I understand the Eagles did have a pick six, which kind of gave, you know, it, it kind of skews a little bit of the time of possession there. But even that was in their own end. And, you know, dangerous to close to being a touchdown if there wasn't a misread there by the receiver and Kyler Murray. So, this this actually cost the Eagles a chance to get that number one seed. I know it was kind of a pipe dream at this juncture. They needed to win out, defeating both the Cards and the Giants the next two weeks. And they needed a little bit of help next week from the Rams, which it, it's possible. But now that San Fran has nothing to play for, they might not even use their guys. Uh, the Rams <clears throat> maybe could have won that game, but who knows? It's not fun when you have to rely on other people and other teams to kind of get you where you need to go. Um now they basically need Dallas to lose to Washington on Sunday and the Eagles need to beat the Giants and then they would at least get the two seed. I'm sorry, the, the two or the three seed. They need the Lions to lose as well uh, in order to get the two seed, but we'll see what happens there. They're the first team in NFL history to start 10-1 and one and lose five games in a season. And this is now the second time of the season the Eagles have shot themselves right in the foot following help from their contemporaries. Of course, the Bills beating the Cowboys a few weeks back. Eagles turned around the next day and kind of returned the Cowboys the favor, uh, choking that game away to Seattle. And then this weekend, Cowboys beat the Lions, which, you know, kind of sucks to need the Cowboys to win, but and it does stink the way it happened. But 
they needed the Cowboys to beat the Lions in order for the Eagles to have that second place tiebreaker uh, with strength of schedule and, and you know conference record. And the Lions lost, and then the Eagles lost a game to a team that has four wins. So not fun. And at this point, I'm kind of che- I'm not checked out. I still love this team and I still love this season. I, I enjoy talking football, but if they lose, they have only themselves to blame in the playoffs. And I don't really have the the high hopes I did last year. Even last year, my my expectations were kind of tempered as we entered the postseason. I was un, unsure, of course, of that team. Granted, they went to the Super Bowl and um, beat a couple of really good teams on the way there. But I think that my expectations this year, you know, maybe win a game and then just don't get blown out in the second round. I mean, at this point, they're going to have to beat Tampa Bay on the road or beat uh, whoever the seventh seed is at home which could be the Rams, could be the Packers, could be whoever. And and then you got to take on Dallas or Detroit or somebody like that in the second round. So it's going to be tough. The road is not as easy as it seems. So as it seemed earlier anyway, when you had the home field advantage, you would have at least two games at home or at least one. And then if you won that, obviously you would have the second one at home as well. But now you got to go and beat other teams in their home barns and it's going to be hard. Um, I, this game to me, I was thinking about it today on the way to work. Uh, I typically will listen to sports radio I've been kind of kind of avoiding it recently, at least on the the drive into work and the drive home, because I like sometimes I feel like sometimes if I'm listening, I don't want to let them kind of dictate my opinions. I, I like to formulate my own opinions and not really worry about what the quote unquote professionals are saying. But I was you know driving into work, listening to some music this morning, and it, on the way there, kind of I almost had a deja vu feeling of a couple of years back when I went to work the day after they got blown out by the Saints. In uh, in the Superdome, I believe it was like forty to seven or something like that, or forty to thirteen. They got crushed. The Saints wore the alternate uniforms. They played. Um, that was the game that Doug Peterson and Sean Payton played golf in order to determine who would wear their uh, their home uniform that game. Um, the Saints were still pissed off about the previous year, uh, not having beaten Minnesota, and then the Eagles kind of blowing through everybody winning the Super Bowl. I was thinking about that game, and it had me. It even it sparked a couple more thoughts about some of the most embarrassing losses in recent memory for the Eagles. Um, I wrote this down as worst losses. I'm thinking devastating is probably not the word. I think embarrassing is a good word for it. The five I was able to come up with, um, the Saints 2018 blowout is up there, obviously. This one is included in this list. Uh, The loss to the Lions in 2015 under Chip Kelly and the one in 16 when Lane Johnson was suspended, just backbreakers. The the one where Ryan Matthews fumbled and just terrible. The, The Dolphins loss... In 2015 as well, I believe that was when Mark Sanchez was the quarterback. They were up, I think, 14 points in the first half. Um, Sanchez came in and kind of just blew the game for them. Dolphins come all the way back. Uh, the Dolphins lost in 2019 just popped into my head. That terrible Dolphins team wound up being a top five pick in the draft. That was the game that the you know the punter threw a touchdown pass to the kicker. Um, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, I believe, dropped a touchdown to the end zone. Um the Panthers 2018 lost the link when the Eagles had a lead, gave up uh, back-to-back touchdowns in the fourth quarter. Cam Newton and the Panthers came back and beat them. The 2014 Washington game, I think that was a Saturday night. Deshaun Jackson's return to Philadelphia. Washington wins that game and essentially wins the division, moving into the playoffs. And then the uh, the back-to-back blowouts this season, um, the Dallas game on Sunday night and the San Francisco game the week prior, I thought those two games were embarrassing and uh, some of the worst times. I, I don't think the losses in the playoffs are as embarrassing as these regular season losses, as weird as that might sound. Um, understanding that one of them was a blowout, that Tampa game was a blowout, but the Eagles had no business being there as the seven seed anyway. And that was Brady in his final year. So 
I'll kind of cut him some slack there. Hurts his first year as well. Um, and, and of course the the loss to uh, to New Orleans in 2018 in the Superdome in the playoffs. He blew a 14 nothing lead, but uh, that that team was way 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 better than the Eagles. And the Eagles had no business being there, and they were also a drop away from maybe going down the field and at least tying the game. So you never know. Um, I, I do want to point out one thing. Uh, I'll get to this as well when I get to the AJ Brown bullet point here. The Eagles this season, when seeing a zero blitz, um, it's happened 56 times, which is 12 times more than the second team in the NFL. Jalen Hurts has um, an EPA per play, which is expected points added, which basically measures how productive you are on a play, whether regardless of the outcome. It's really the process. Uh, his EPA on those plays is 0.32, which is 30th in the NFL, um, which leads me to my second bullet point, A.J. Brown. This is actually not the uh, not the context that I think most people are go- going to be expecting me to talk about him here. I think I'm actually going to align myself with him. And I think that the the media coverage of him is a tad overblown. I believe that this unwillingness to speak to the media, this uh, this sulking on the sideline, I don't think it's much more than frustration. I don't think it's him being – obviously, he's a diva. Every star receiver in the NFL is a diva, and if, if they aren't, they will be at some point. Um, the exception of a couple, you know, players like uh, – I don't believe Jamar Chase is one. I don't believe Cooper Cup is one. There are a couple other guys that I don't think are, you know, full-on divas. I mean – Calvin Ridley doesn't strike me as such, and it, there are plenty. And and obviously, over time, it, it things can change. Guys can become you know massive divas. But I I, I digress. D, AJ Brown is likely a diva, as are most you know elite wide receivers in the NFL, elite skill players in the NFL. But I do believe this is not much more than just him being frustrated at the offense. The I just read you that stat to kind of set this up. AJ Brown, if you watch it, if you look at his route trees, which are available on NFL.com, and Obviously, you can find them pretty much anywhere. I read The Athletic pretty frequently. A lot of guys will, you know, when writing their articles, will include those in there. Um, his route tree against the Giants most recently, and then I'm interested to see how his, how his route tree looked against the cards. He obviously lines up outside sometimes in the slot. Um, his routes are pretty much all to the numbers or the boundary and almost never to the middle of the field. Of course, he caught those two slants against the Niners, but and they got him, you know, 40 yards pretty much out of those two plays and just completely abandoned that. I, I am 5% hopeful that they will be bringing some of that back into the offense once they get to the playoffs, but I really don't think Brian Johnson and the play calling on offense and Nick Sirianni, the, you know, the game planning are going to really be smart enough to use that. Um, it's really discouraging. Um, he's paid a lot of money, you know, hundred million dollar contract to be a focal point of this offense and be the guy. Every young quarterback needs that elite receiver to kind of get them over the, over the hump. His uh, his you know body of work speaks for itself. He was great last year, back to back thousand yard seasons as a, as an eagle. First two seasons as an eagle with back to back thousand yard seasons, and that's pretty impressive. And then he and Smith are going to have back to back thousand yard seasons this year, which is I think the first time that two teammates have ever done that. He he's the most explosive receiver this team has seen since you know Terrell Owens, and To was only here for two years. I hope that's not the case with Brown. I hope Brown retires an eagle and his numbers retired. He goes in the Hall of Fame as an eagle. The, the concern for me is he's only been targeted, you know, a few times in the first half in the last couple of games. Last year, it seemed like he was getting targeted a lot. In the playoffs, he got targets a lot. Hurts kind of fed him the ball in the, in the uh, Super Bowl. Of course, early this season, he was not thrilled with the way the offense looked. He was getting the ball after that. He had those six straight games of 125 yards, set the NFL record. 
His first eight games of the season, he had 60 catches for 939 yards, five touchdowns, and the Eagles were 7-1 and one in those games. The last eight games, the most recent eight games up until this past weekend with the Cards, 45 catches. So, you know, probably two catches fewer a game, 15 less, 508 fewer yards. I'm sorry, 508 yards, which is, you know, 431 fewer yards total and then two touchdowns. Still a good season. He's at 1,447 yards on 105 catches. He's got eight touchdowns. I'm sorry, seven touchdowns, but only two touchdowns his last eight games. And the Eagles are four and four in that span. So I can understand the frustration. They're not throwing the ball down the field. They're running a high school offense, in my opinion. The Tons of draw plays, tons of screens, uh, too many screens to the outside for guys like Dallas Goddard, Julio Jones. They threw, you know, they're throwing screens to freaking uh, Kenneth Gainwell. I, I don't like the offense the way it's currently constructed. Um, personnel wise, I think they have a great offense on paper. They have, you know, probably the best offensive line of the league, arguably the best, you know, wide receiver combo in the league, probably a top five tight end and theoretically a good running back too, a running game, at least with the three guys that are going to cycle in. The problem is they, they really don't know how to employ these guys. And I think the guy that truly knew what he was doing left the team this off season and took the offense with him to Indianapolis and is probably going to win the division down there with Gardner Minshew, who was the backup here last year, who threw for 400 yards in a game against the Cowboys. So my concern is that the offense is getting very, very stale. They're not very creative and it's, you know, it, it truly is pissing off the players. I, I can see the frustration, whether it be, you know, AJ Brown, Devontae Smith doesn't really show the frustration. Hertz doesn't either, but th- there are guys that are showing frustration. There's a lot of, you know, demonstrative things that are happening on the field. Obviously the fans are pissed. Something has got to give. And I think that when they, replaced Sean Desai earlier this season with Matt Patricia. That was a move to, for the sake of a move. They really need to look into, if they're going to go places, Brian Johnson's got to go. Now, this nonsense about uh, A.J. Brown not being a good leader. Excuse me, I almost spilled my water. This nonsense about A.J. Brown not being a great leader. Dispelled. A lot of guys love the guy. Holy smokes, the Sixers are up 43-18. to 18. Um, good for them. They need a good get right game here against the, uh, the bulls. They're not on my rundown, but I hope they blow out the bulls. Um, where was it? And Jordan, my was on 90, 94 one today. I didn't hear the interview, but I saw the, the, uh, the quote that was posted. Um, he, uh, AJ Brown apparently took the team out to a, um, to one of those escape room things prior to the, the games this weekend. And it, it was kind of like a team bonding type of deal. Obviously all the players love him. I think this nonsense about him not being a good leader is coming from people with nothing better to do, like Marcus Hayes and weirdo writers and people that don't know how to really don't know what they're talking about. Don't have inside sources. I think it really just boils down to this team needs a new offensive coordinator or they're going to start losing the locker room. I think that is the biggest concern. Number three, let's move on to Joe Flacco. I'll make this kind of quick. Um, as a fellow Wildwood, New Jersey goer in the summer, I appreciate his little his comeback. He's living Tom Brady's dream. I don't. I sometimes forget what I say on these podcasts, whether I say it to people or if I'm saying it, uh, just on the podcast itself. Uh, Joe Flacco is living Tom Brady's dream, uh, at least the end of his career type of dream, because I think Tom Brady really desperately wanted to skip OTAs and only come into the season, you know, fresh in you know october november or november december as you um kind of avoiding injury and going right into a playoff push um joe flacco in 
in five games this year. Uh, thirteen hundred. I'm sorry, this is the first four games. Thirteen hundred seven yards, ten touchdowns, seven interceptions in the first four games he's played this year. Uh, that would equate to 5,555 yards over the full season, 43 touchdowns, which would lead the NFL, 30 interceptions, which would also lead the NFL. That would be his pace over 17 games. He's got more uh, passing touchdowns than the Jets this season and more tackles than DeMar Hamlin this season, who he is going head-to-head with for the comeback player of the year. In my humble opinion, not to take anything away from DeMar Hamlin and his remarkable comeback, obviously he passed away most likely on the field last year was revived and is now, you know, on an NFL roster, regardless of whether or not he's on an NFL roster for, you know, gimmick reasons because of the fact that he died last year. I think that his lack of actually, you know, being able to get on the field, not playing as much, obviously there were injuries last year, which got him onto the field in the first place, but him not actually playing, I feel like it's unfair to give him the uh, comeback player of the year when there's a true candidate in Joe Flacco. If there were no other candidates this year and it were kind of a, it was just him, and maybe you can give it to you know somebody. I don't even know who's coming back from an injury this year, but someone else who's kind of just having an okay season or was was terrible or hurt. Then I'm fine with Hamlin. But I think at this point, if Joe Flacco continues playing the way he is, he's the comeback player of the year. And right now, I, I think you can make the argument he is a top ten quarterback in the league right this second, and maybe top five if you're trying to win a game right now. He might be one of the guys you go to. Um, let's go to oh also. Uh, I hope for someone brought this up to me on New Year's Eve. I hope he gets the chance to go to MT Bank Stadium in Baltimore as a Brown and face his old team in a playoff game. I think that would be kind of cool. And I would uh, I would actually consider going to that. Uh, next up, Lions-Cowboys is number four. Cowboys won this on Saturday night. This was a standalone primetime game. Jimmy Johnson going into the, uh, the ring of honor or whatever. Um, Cowboys win 2019. Last-minute touchdown with, I believe, 20 seconds left from Amon Ross St. Brown on the Lions. This was a furious comeback. I don't know how many people thought Detroit was actually going to come back that late, but they made a couple of really nice plays. Amon Ra made a fantastic little grab and kind of stretched for a touchdown at the end there. Uh, they scored a two-point play. Dan Campbell and his large nuts going for it to try to win the game on the road, which is you know common, um, I guess, strategy or kind of a philosophy in football. When you're on the road, you're more likely to go for it at the end because you want to go for the win as opposed to when you're at home, you have a little bit of an advantage. You can sometimes just play for the tire play for overtime two point play. It was a remarkable play, a throw to the tackle eligible Taylor Decker. However, it was deemed after the play. He was ineligible as he never reported to the official. Now there's a ton of video that has come out and also a ton of interviews that have come out, whether it be Goff Campbell, um, Taylor Decker and the number 70 skipper, who was the guy that the officiating crew deemed was eligible. Decker looks like he went over and, and marked himself eligible. There's a, you have to go over to the official, essentially. I, if, from what, from the research I've done, you have to go up to the official with the white hat, uh, do the eligibility symbol, which is like your hands in front of your numbers and let them know you're eligible for the following play. Dan Campbell also said he drew the play on paper and, handed it to Brad Allen and his his crew before the game and said, look, we're doing this later. So he alerted them to the play. And it looks like Goff before the play even told Taylor Decker, hey, go go let them know you're going to be eligible here. We need to, you know, whatever. And despite that, they still did not mark him eligible. And essentially it was called back a five-yard penalty for illegal touching. Dan Campbell went for it again. And there was a an offside on the Cowboys defensive end. Went for it again from the three 
and were unable to get it a short pass um, short of the goal line. Goff, if he makes a more accurate pass, there's a chance the tight end catches it and scores. But it's a shame. the, Ly- the This loss cost the Lions a chance at the two seed, although it's still in play. Uh, the Eagles and Cowboys would both have to lose this weekend for Detroit to win. It also would have to win their game to get in as the uh, the two seed, which would then have them hosting um, most likely whoever well, whoever the seven seed is, which at this moment is still undetermined. Uh, so there's a chance they could finish with the three seeds, so they would still at least get a home game. They're they're already won the division, and we'll, we'll see who they end up facing in the playoffs. It could be the Packers at this point too, which is which would be very fascinating. But we'll see. But this really did screw them. All right, number five. We're almost halfway home on the Tuesday, ten January second, two thousand twenty-four. Thanks for listening. Um, you heard in the open there, Michigan defeating Alabama. This, to me, was an outstanding football game. This is, of course, in the college football playoff. Uh, this is the first time I can remember really having two great games in the semifinals, and I know that's what the committee wants. And there was all that controversy with um, with Florida State. And, of course, if Florida State had gotten in, then what do you do with Texas? Washington? What do you do with Texas and Bama? What do you do with Bama and Georgia? Washington had to get in. Of course, Michigan had to get in. This was the 1-4 matchup. This was the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, one of the most beautiful stadiums to look at. I, I very upset, not very upset, but I'm uh, upset that we weren't able to go visit the Rose Bowl in Pasadena when we were in, uh, I was on my honeymoon with my wife. That would have been a cool place to be, but there's not really much to do aside from just look at the stadium. So I, I don't blame us for not going. Um, this was just a, a such a well-played football game. Both quarterbacks, J.J. McCarthy, Jalen Milrow, I thought were okay. Uh, nothing special, of course. You know, a lot of the people are going to come out and say, hey, Look how Florida State's quarterback did against Georgia versus how these two guys did. I think Milrow threw for 168 yards or something like that. He, to me, is not really a guy you want to hit your wagon to. I think Bama's going to have to dip their toes into the transfer portal or you know go to a younger guy and use one of their recruits as a quarterback next year. Milrow, I thought, was good in the regular season, but down the stretch, he wasn't great in the Georgia game. I thought he was good enough to win the game for them. Their defense really did the work that day. Um, and then this game, of course, Milrow was not that great. I mean, he he was missing throws. He's a good runner, great runner, in fact. And then the last play of the game, of course, there was the mishap. But he's he's a great runner for a quarterback. But I think at this point, he's very unpolished. Um, um, so a couple of things that stood out to me: Michigan's kicker. I watched more of this game than I did the late game. I I've kind of fell asleep. Not fell asleep. I kind of uh, fell out of it for a little bit, and then um, you know, had it on before I went to sleep. So I, my my remembrance of the the late game is not as good as this one. I was also glued to the television for this one. So the Michigan's kicker, James Turner, he bailed Bama out with a missed field goal, which was right after the Milrow fumble, the Jalen Milrow fumble on the exchange. And I thought that fumble was going to change the entire complexion of the game. I thought it was going to flip, you know, the betting odds and all that stuff. Uh, Michigan pretty much goes nowhere. They shank the kick. And then, of course, uh, Jalen Milrow getting sacked on third down, Bama having to settle for three with four minutes left when a touchdown would have put the Wolverines out of it. Um, I thought that was going to, you know, that proved costly. Um, there was a late touchdown from Roman Wilson, a good throw by McCarthy, good run by Wilson, and then a, a pretty bad drive by Bama after that, which actually almost lost Bama the game. If they hadn't gotten a first down on the ensuing drive after they allowed the touchdown to um, to Wilson, then there's a good chance Michigan goes down the field and maybe gets points. Um them getting the one, t- uh, the one, you know, first down, kind of saving the, uh, making Michigan use one of their timeouts, that kind of saved them in the end. And then uh, Blake Corum, leading the FBS this year, twenty-four touchdowns. 
and uh, broke the Michigan all-time record for touchdowns as he was the uh, the only guy to score in overtime. Uh, Michigan scored, I think, on like their second play in overtime, 17-yard touchdown for Corum. Uh, and then Bama snapped on fourth and goal from the three. Um, questionable play call, however, I look back at it, and I, I might have to you know see if anybody smarter than me pointed this out too because from the looks of it, it looks almost like an RPO or maybe a PO, like more of a pass run option with a pass as the first option. Um, so on the fourth and three or fourth and goal play from the three, the snap was a little low. And prior to the snap, there was a man in motion. The running back went in motion to the, the, the lower half, like the, the near side of the screen and Michigan kind of tipped, you know, tipped their hand by they, they, they were in zone and they were pretty much showing blitz from the outset. I think if that ball doesn't nearly hit the ground on the snap from Milrow, I think he maybe makes that read and throws the ball to the flat and the running back, you know, has a 50, 50 chance of scoring there. The problem is the snap was low. That pulls Milrose eyes away from the running, you know, the running back moving into the flat. He all of a sudden pretty much bails on the read. Says, I got to go. His internal clock is ticking way faster than it needs to be. And he runs right into his guard. Um, so Michigan, kudos to them moving on to the championship, looking to win their first title under Harbaugh, first title in God knows how long. This is the first time in uh, almost 10 years, I think actually might be, I think it's nine years, first time since the the Oregon and I believe, was that Florida State? I believe it was Oregon, Florida State. Um, I would have to look back and I'm going to have to figure that one out. But first time since I believe 2015 that, um, that the college football playoff will not have an SEC team in the championship. Of course, Bama went to a bunch after that. Uh, Georgia was in a couple, and, uh, and away we go. So, congratulations to Michigan. I do believe in this game. Just to be, uh, just to make myself clear, I think Florida State loses this game by at least twenty points, even with the guys that did opt out. Um, I just don't think that. Uh, what the hell is this? Um, sorry, I got a uh, breaking news from Twitter, but it was just a um, a fantasy basketball alert. Um, I do believe Florida State gets their you know gets wiped off the floor in this game, especially with uh, with all the you know the quarterback issues. And I think I really thought this game was going to favor Bama a month to prepare against a guy like JJ McCarthy, kind of get Milrow ready. And I was I was dead wrong. So let's move on to the, the late game. I have a little bit different take on this one. Michael Panix. An outstanding showcase for him. Um, his stock continues to rise. I know he's a little bit older. Um, he's kind of, you know, he's the transfer going to Washington. That offense is so creative and so dynamic. And he's such a joy to watch, Penix, as well as Roma Dunze. And, you know, some of these other guys, McMillan, uh, they're, they're just an outstanding. And this was a great football game from the highlights I saw. I didn't watch the whole thing. Like I said, I kind of fell out of consciousness for a little bit. Got sidetracked with a few things uh, regarding work the following day and then uh, kind of fell asleep right after the game ended. Um, Michael Penix, to me, I think it might be the best quarterback in the draft class coming up. Um, I was a little more excited about Caleb Williams prior to the season and a little bit down on everybody else. And I think it's starting to flip. I think I'm kind of out on um, Caleb. I might even be out on Drake May and um, and Jaden Daniels. I think that Penix is the best quarterback in this draft class. I know he's a little bit older than some of the other guys and, you know, Left-handed quarterbacks, you got to kind of tailor your offense a little bit differently. Your right tackle is more important than your left one, and you got to kind of figure out who can play on what side of the field. 
I think that you you draft this guy and you worry about everything else later. He's the best quarterback in the draft class coming up. Um, th- there was a touch pass to the left side on the boundary to Roma Dunze, where Dunze also made an amazing catch, uh, quick hands on the ball. The, the touch that this man throws the ball with, he threw the ball through two safeties. Um, I believe this was the touchdown of McMillan. It was going to the right side of the or, sorry, the left side of the field, and he just just shot one right between the two defenders. I, I was I'm in awe when I watch this kid play quarterback, and I think that I would love to have him on my team in the NFL. And I think that he will be a um, he will be a pretty coveted player as we approach uh, draft season. Um, I do ask that nobody compares him to. Uh, like I know that there will be a a comparison because of the handedness. Please do not compare him with Tua Tagovailoa. They're very different quarterbacks. Tua, game manager who can stretch the field. I think Penix can make every throw on the field and do it with ease. Um, I've said it from for a couple months now. I think Caleb Williams reminds me too much of Zach Wilson for me to worry, to, for me to want him early in the draft. And May, Daniels, I think they're both okay. I, I would not trade up for them. I would not make them focal points of my, my draft uh, day strategy. Penix is the guy for me. Uh, he led the FBS in passing yards this year, 4,218 yards. He had 430 yesterday, uh, just completely outclassing Quinn Ewers, who I thought had a decent year, but um, Ewers on that last drive, a couple of really bad mistakes, uh, bad incompletions in the red zone there. And I, I've kind of felt this way all season because I guess it's, until they prove me otherwise, which I guess they kind of did this year, Texas being back, this notion that you know they win these games. They did win a couple big games. They beat Oklahoma. Of course, they won the uh, the Big 12 title game. They've beaten some good teams, but I think Texas, for the most part, was pretty fraudulent. If you were going to keep anybody out of the playoff, I know you can't because they beat Alabama. I think I would have maybe considered putting Georgia in over Texas. Um, Georgia winning 63-3 over FSU doesn't move the needle too much for me. It shows me that a lot of their guys care. Carson Beck had a good game, but I, I because a lot of those guys didn't opt out. I, I don't think that's too indicative. I think it's more indicative of the fact that FSU dropped a lot of guys. A lot of those guys didn't want to play. I think Georgia's body of work in the regular season and the and even the postseason in the SEC title game more more impressive to me than what Texas did. Even though Texas, you know, technically deserved to be there, and they did. I think that this is a good year for uh, expansion talks because there were so many teams that probably deserved to be in the playoff. Uh, moving on to the number seven bullet point this week: uh, bowl game opt outs. I'll make this kind of quick. Uh, my solution: I'm, this is not a you know. A, a revolutionary idea because I'm sure others have come up with it, but uh, I do have a solution, a small solution. I don't, I don't think it'll ever happen, but um, if you want to keep guys from opting out of these bowl games, or at least reduce the number of guys that have, I would make it so you don't get paid NIL money. If you don't play throughout the entire season, if you opt out voluntarily, obviously you get paid for the games you play, but if you don't play in these games, 10% of that money or whatever it is, cut it. Um, also, I would wait to announce or even determine all Americans and, you know, award winners like the, you know, the Boletnikov award, all these different things, the Heisman. I would wait till after bowl season or at least wait until after the non-playoff bowls because the playoff teams, obviously nobody's going to opt out. The teams that are in, you know, the new year six opting out. That's, it's just so bad for the sport and it's bad enough already. And I'm a pro playoff guy. I think that every level of sport should have some sort of a playoff involved especially because it kind of cuts out some of the subjectivity of, um, you know, the BCS era where it was just one and two. And that was kind of, it was a very subjective choice. And even now one, two, three, and four, very subjective because there's no cut and dry way to do it. 
I, I am pro playoff, but I do think what one thing that has been hurt by the college football playoff era the last you know 11 years or so is these other bowl games are not as significant, especially when you don't use, especially if the Rose Bowl is part of the the playoff and the Sugar Bowl is part of the playoff. Like some of these big bowls, like the Rose Bowl used to be a big deal. It still is, but it's part of the playoff every couple of years and it rotates in. And when it's not part of the playoff, it's kind of a big deal. But, you know, some of these other bowls don't matter. Like, I don't know how how prestigious the, the Cheez-It Bowl is for some folks or the Pop-Tart Bowl or whatever these other bowls, the, the GoDaddy.com Bowl, the, the Barstool Bowl. No one cares. I mean, you get a little bit more funding for your program and you get a, a nice little trophy you can throw in the trophy case. It's cool for these, you know, sm- like the group of five schools, but Power 5 schools don't care about this stuff, especially contending schools. FSU, great example. Just – Half their team opts out. You know, in years past, you'd have guys on Georgia opting out. Stanford, the one year, Kirk McCaffrey opted out. Leonard Fournette opts out. You know, a lot of these big names, they don't want to play in the bowl games. I mean, uh, who was the other one? Garrett Wilson a couple years ago opted out of his bowl game. And then on Twitter the other day, said, we got to stop the opt out. So, I mean, I don't know what you want me to do here. Um, I, I would I would push back the uh, – maybe maybe not the, the voting of it, although the players would get wind of that and it won't matter. But the voting and the announcement of the award winners – and all Americans and things like that, I think it should be pushed back till after bowl season, at least after the non-playoff bowls, because I think the bowls that are tied into the playoffs, guys are not going to opt out of. Um, and I think the portal going forward is really going to you know, kill any non, non-playoff bowl games. I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it next year. You're going to have you know, 12 teams in the, play- in the playoffs. You're going to have four games in the first round. You're going to have four more in the second, and then two more in the one. You're going to have a lot of games, so that you can't make them all bowl games. I think they're going to have to just be semifinal, quarterfinal. And then when you get to the final four, then it can be bowl games. But the portal is also killing it. Um, you know, FSU, Tate Rodemaker, he's transferring. You got guys transferring all over the place. Um, DJ Uyagalale, he's transferring to uh, Florida State next year, which I think will be kind of fun. Apparently, he um, he committed to Norvell yesterday. So, that, that fun stuff. But look. I think the the portal should not even open until after this stuff ends, and it shouldn't even be allowed to explore that. Uh, it just sucks because bowl games used to be a huge deal, and I was looking forward to them this year, and then I remembered everybody just doesn't play. So it is what it is. Let's move on to number eight. Uh, let's get away from football, at least momentarily. The Winter Classic. So one of my favorite traditions in sports, probably the coolest thing uh, between the four sports. So I talked earlier on an earlier episode about how opening day in baseball is like the one – uh, the, the baseball is the one sport that kind of still has a little bit of magic surrounding opening day. I think the only cool thing outside of that in sports, because football doesn't really have anything special. Super Bowl obviously is what it is. That's the biggest sporting event probably in the world. Um, the, you know, the World Series is, is special. The NBA playoffs are fun. The NHL playoffs are fun. But aside from opening day in baseball, I feel like there's not really anything that is tradition that still has a little bit of magic around it. And I know that this is not a long-standing tradition. This is something that's only been going on for, you know, less than 20 years. But the outdoor hockey game, I think, is one of the coolest things in sports. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to take, you know, basketball outdoors. I think they played in a, a, a what's called a football stadium before uh, for an all-star game. And I know that some of the final four games are played in, um, in you know, domes and things like that. And I think San Antonio played in the Alamo Dome last year. Um but I think that the idea, like football, you can't really take indoor or outdoor because they do play it outdoors. Same thing with baseball. There's nothing special. And, you know, some of these series where they go to Japan and they go to Australia or whatever, and next year the, the Phillies and Mets are going to London. I don't really care about that. I, I, most fans probably don't either. So I think that this is the one cool thing 
that the NHL has that no other sport has, especially for a sport where most of the people playing it grew up playing it in the elements. Obviously, football, you grew up playing outdoors, but you play it outdoors anyway. Basketball, a lot of guys, unless they have like an all-star game on like a blacktop somehow for the NBA, which would be kind of cool, although that would probably be a risk of injury, which so they'll never do. The only sport that really you can go back to your roots when you're in the NHL is these outdoor hockey games. And I think that they have done a really good job. They don't market their sport very well. Baseball and hockey do a horrible job of marketing their sports. But I think that these games, I remember watching the first one in 2008 on uh, New Year's Day. It was in Buffalo. I think it was called Ralph Wilson Stadium at this point. Um, the Pittsburgh Penguins went into Buffalo and beat the Sabres in a shootout. The next year, there was, uh, I believe, the game in Wrigley, uh, the Blackhawks and the Red Wings. The year after that was the Flyers and the Bruins at Fenway. What an amazing time that was. That was one of my favorite sporting events I've ever attended, in spite of the fact that the Flyers lost in overtime, but it was so much fun. And then, you know, 2011 was the outdoor game with the, I believe, the Penguins, and that would have been the Capitals when it rained and there was a delay, and it was the first night game. And then they started, and then the Flyers played in 2012 when they lost to the uh, the Rangers in Citizen Bank Park. And then, you know, you started introducing these, these um, stadium series games which I think were very, very cool because the, uh, the Winter Classic, for anybody who's not familiar, go watch highlights. They're very fun to watch. These games, they're outdoors. The, the most recent one was played in uh, T-Mobile Park in Seattle, the, uh, the Kraken defeat of the Golden Knights. The two most, you know, the two newest NHL teams, great way to market them, get them out of the, on the map. And Seattle winning a game sold out to the Raptors, you know, 50,000 people. These games, you know, the Winter Classic, they bring out these classic jerseys. Some of them are ones that the teams have worn in the past. Some of them are ones that the team has not worn. Obviously, Seattle and Vegas, they don't really have classic jerseys, but these were kind of substitutes. The, you know, the stadium series jerseys are cool. They have the dark colors. They have the, the vibrant colors. The Flyers had an orange one, a black one. You know, they've played in some of these fun games. Um, I just think the outdoor games are fun, and I, I've been to two of them, and I plan on going to another one this year when, uh, when the Flyers play in, uh, in Jersey against the Devils. That'll be, I think, February 17th. My co-host, I believe that's his birthday. We're going to try to drag him with me. Um, and I just wish Philly would get another one of these because I think it's, you know, they've had, they've had two of them, which is more than most places have. But Chicago's been in like five. Pittsburgh's been in a ton. Washington's playing a bunch. Detroit's playing a couple. So, it, you know, I, whatever. But I do enjoy the uh, the outdoor game, especially on New Year's Day or the day after or the day before. They sometimes, when they're interfered with uh, by uh, the NFL, they're forced to play on a different day. But it's a fun tradition for me, and I like watching these games. Um, number nine, US, USF, uh, the XFL and the USFL merging. Uh, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, and Danny Garcia went on Fox to announce the teams participating in the UFL, which is the merged uh, XFL-USFL kind of secondary football league, I guess. They did this over the weekend. Um, it's going to be eight teams. There were eight teams in both leagues. They're keeping pretty much half. Um, so there were 16 teams combined, but they're only going to keep eight, at least to start. Uh, the Arlington Renegades, the D.C. Defenders, San Antonio Brahmas, St. Louis Battlehawks are going to be in the uh, the XFL division. And then you have the Birmingham Stallions, the Houston Roughnecks, Memphis Showboats, and the Michigan Panthers are going to be in the USFL division. Uh, the Basically, the first four teams I named are XFL holdovers. They're going to be in the XFL division. The four teams after that are USFL holdovers. However, the uh, the Roughnecks are going to be like rebranded. That is an XFL branding that the USFL team is taking in Houston. So there's three teams in Texas. Uh, so the Philly loses the stars, which was a pretty fun team. I think they went to the championship two years ago and lost to, I think Pittsburgh, 
Um, Philly loses the stars. I thought they were fun. I kind of hope they make a comeback, especially if games are going to be in person. I would love to go to some of these. Uh, the Seattle Sea Dragons are gone. That was a fun team as well. Um, no Florida teams, no New York teams, no Jersey teams, and three Texas teams. So I guess they are trying to corner those markets. Uh, specifically, those Texas teams are, were pretty good at selling, uh, you know, selling tickets. And of course, the Battlehawks in St. Louis, people are starved for football there. Uh, they were led by AJ McCarron last year, so it only makes sense. Uh, we do get a cool opening day week, uh, opening week matchup. It's basically the weekend after the Super Bowl, I think, is when this kicks off. Uh, opening week, we get the uh, the XFL champions, the uh, the Renegades taking on the Stallions of the USFL. So the two champions go head to head. Pretty good idea there by uh, Garcia and Dwayne Johnson. And uh, I do think it'll be kind of like a mild success. I think it'll be more successful than the two leagues on their own. It's going to be, you know, they're not going to be competing with each other anymore. They have a little bit more financial backing. They, I, I forget if they're going with a franchise model or if they're just going with, you know, the teams are owned by the league and there's a, a you know, a figurehead for each team. But I think this is going to work really well as kind of a developmental thing for the NFL. I think for a long time, we went almost 20 years without a secondary football league in the United States. And I know we have the CFL, we do have college football and all these different things, but we didn't have a secondary league in the, US, in the United States. 2020, we, the USFL was around for a little bit. 2020, of course, the XFL made it through, I think, you know, half the season and then just kind of had to fold. And then, you know, the Rock bought it. Danny Garcia, his business manager and ex-wife, they um, they kind of built it up last year. And I thought the product was really good last year. Some of the players you might not know, but there are a handful of guys that were, you know, able to make the league interesting. So I think it'll be fun. I think it's a cool, like, little venture. I think I'm going to be pretty invested, of course, at least up until when uh, when baseball kicks off, which – then you're kind of in a weird spot because all four sports are going to be playing at the same time. And the fourth, you know, football, instead of being number one, will be number four. But I think it'll be successful. And I think it'll be fun. Number 10. This is something I want to talk about with my co-host on uh, Thursday. Uh, as he and I have been preparing for WrestleMania in Philly, uh, I want to talk about The Rock. So The Rock made his comeback on uh, Monday, yesterday on Raw and hinted at a potential feud with Roman Reigns, from what I understand. My co-host, Joel, understands this a lot better than me, so I'm not going to go too into detail here. But I do think it would be a, um, a miscarriage of justice if uh, he and I spent 500 bucks on two nights of WrestleMania tickets and The Rock is headlining one of the nights. The guy was gassed yesterday after doing two moves to some guy I never heard of, like Mahal or whatever. Um, I, I just I hate the idea of a part-timer guy like him. He's really a no-timer, is what I said to Joel this morning when I was texting with him. If they have a part-timer in Roman Reigns and a no-timer in The Rock headlining WrestleMania, I likely will not buy tickets to the second night and just go to the first night. Um, and I'm, I, I'm only saying this because I want to tease a, uh, a little bit of a segment on Thursday when he and I uh, talk about it. But that is my uh, my opinion on The Rock. I like him a lot as an entertainer. He's a great businessman. He's you know obviously helping the XFL you know kind of come back into prominence. But I think it kind of stinks if um, – if they've been building this bloodline thing for, you know, four years now, and he's going to be the guy that comes in and kind of squashes everything because, um, you know, he was a star 20 years ago. So that's my Tuesday 10. I'm interested to hear what everybody thinks. Uh, follow us on Instagram, pa.turnpod. Uh, potentially a new logo coming in the few in the next few weeks. Uh, Joel and I are going to have some new content. Um, our, our regular episodes, our regular timeline episodes, we record on Thursdays. They are available on YouTube as well as Spotify. If you're listening to this, thank you so much. Please rate the podcast, uh, spread the word. We're trying to put out as much content as we can within our, you know, within our personal limits, of course, with work and everything going on. Um, 
And I want to also wish everybody a happy new year. Once again, uh, happy holidays. Hope everybody's staying healthy and well, uh, hug your loved ones. And, uh, I guess listen to the podcast and subscribe. So that's my Tuesday 10. What's yours?